thankful for each one of you that are here this morning. And we've been in a series off and on, taking a break for summers and different occasions in the Gospel of John for not quite two years. And uh, uh, two years ago, we uh, came to a decision to call the name of the series uh, Good News in a Bad News World. And uh, we were pretty sure that that, uh, that caption for our series would still be good two years later, Good News in a Bad News World. And, uh, and we've been going through and uh, as we start to look at John chapter 17, really one of the, one of the most sacred uh, passages of Scripture, we get to listen in on Jesus praying to the Father. We're just going to cover the first couple of verses of this beautiful prayer in John chapter 17. And the, the, the title uh, for today for us to think through is When God Prayed. When, when God Prayed. Um, we're going to find out here, and I'm going to go through like last week, okay, where does, where does this particular event, where does John 17 fall in relation to the cross? What is the timing of this? And when you grasp the timing of this, it should bring out the beauty even more so of the prayer. The cross is waiting for its victim, uh, and really, uh, Jesus knows this, and other people know this, the disciples don't get it, but death is in the air. In John chapter 16, uh, that we closed last week, Jesus was speaking his last words to his followers. In John chapter 17, Jesus is now going to turn his attention and speak these words to his father. I want to remind you that uh, the last uh, half of the Gospel of John from chapter tw 12 through 21 uh, has to do with the last week of Christ's life. So, so when John wrote about the life of Jesus, he was overwhelmingly enamored with the last week of Christ's life of Christ's life. So I'm just going to uh, once again do a rundown so you can place when, when we're talking about what did Jesus pray, where was he when he prayed, I want you to have in mind uh, wh where, what was going on in Jesus's life. So let me just do this rundown just as right before we start to look at John chapter 17. So uh, in John chapter 12, uh, the last week of Jesus' life uh, starts in the Gospel of John and it talks about what we call Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. And the people are yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And everybody's excited and the disciples are excited. For three years they've been following Jesus and they figured at some point we're going to be in authority with him and people are going to be bowing down to us and we're going to be in charge, no longer the Romans. And this Sunday is like the pinnacle of their excitement about that. They, this is the week that finally Jesus is going to show everybody uh, he's, he's the king. And yet Jesus knows, nobody else gets it that in a couple days he's going to be on the cross. So he does a few things. On Monday, he goes into the temple, he cleanses the temple, he overturns the tables. And you probably have heard this phrase that he prayed about the temple, but he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And, and so he's, he's kicking out the guys doing, uh, and, and he's, he's kicking them out, but he's also ticking them off. And he knows exactly what he's doing because he's aiming for Friday to be on the cross. On Tuesday, 
get that to come up there. On Tuesday, he's going to assure that he's going to get crucified on Friday. Not that he was in doubt, uh, but, but as it plays out in human terms, He's going to meet with the Pharisees, these religious leaders of the day. Everybody had to bow and kiss the ring to them. And he's going to say some words that you would never print off. They weren't sinful words because he never sinned, but you wouldn't take what he's saying in Matthew 23 and pronouncing these woes on the Pharisees. You're not going to find a verse to put on your living room wall in this section. You hypocrites. Uh, you blind. You're blind guides leading blind people. You, you brood of vipers, you snakes. Other phrases like that. He knew exactly, they, they, were, they, were, they were foaming at the mouth. They were so angry with him. And so what you read about when you put all the gospel accounts together is they go back and the Sanhedrin was the top 70 of these religious leaders and they got together and they said, we've been mad at this guy for a long time. We've talked about killing him or taking him out. It's like, we're not going two more days and so they make a plan on Wednesday to kill Jesus. And at the same time, in the sovereignty of God, Judas actually goes to them and says, hey, how much would you pay me if I rat out this guy that you want to crucify by the name of Jesus? So on Wednesday, they pay Judas the 30 pieces of silver. And then we come to the beautiful day on Thursday. And John 17 is going to be at the end of this day. But on Thursday, you have the upper room and you have the meal and you have the farewell discourse. And in the middle of that, Judas is going to leave. So it's Jesus and the 11. And I just kind of want you to picture Jesus with these 11 disciples. Now, he knows everything that's going to happen in the next 24 hours. He's told them, but they don't get it. So, so he has a pity in his eyes. He's with them. Uh, but this is like, this is where it all began. And so it was going to be this beautiful time of having this meal and having this time together. Um, Friday night and Saturday morning, the elders and the deacons went on a, a, a little overnight retreat, not, not far from here, and beautiful setting. And, and uh, we, we all agreed to fast the day before. And then at 6.30 at night, we had a, a, just a little communion service amongst us. And, and, then, and then we had, a, then we had a, a communion bread never tasted so good after you fasted 24 hours. Uh, and then we had a meal and then uh, we, we, we went around sharing a blessing and a burden from our personal lives. And the next person prayed for it. It was a beautiful time. That's what this would have been. Jesus knows it's the cross. Literally all hell's going to break loose. But, but he's with them. And he, he wants to sing a hymn together. So these, these 11 disciples and Jesus, they sing a hymn together. And they depart for Gethsemane. And so they're walking. They're walking through Jerusalem and out the east, east gate. They're going to be going down the Kidron Valley. And right on the other side of the valley, maybe a couple hundred yards away, in the side of this hill, Mount of Olives, is the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a, it's a, the tourism has kind of wrecked it. But it's a beautiful spot that's there today. And in John 17, they're right outside of the gates of the Garden of Gethsemane. John 18, they go in. And so this is where Jesus is at. Now just to, again, remind you, Friday, in an hour or two after John 17, uh, you have the betrayal by Judas, the denial by Peter, all the disciples flee. He's arrested, he's mocked, he's scourged, he's tried, he's crucified, and he's buried. 
On Saturday, the guards are placed at the tomb because they think, well, and then he tries stealing the body and then claim that he was resurrected. Well, we're going to stop that from happening. They don't understand who they're up against. And then on Sunday is the resurrection. So I want to look at the greatest prayer ever prayed. Or I want you to think about this when God prayed. Let's read John 17, 1 through 5 together. I'll pray and then we'll just take a look at these first couple of verses uh, this morning. John 17, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who, whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, verse 3, that, you know, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you, if you mark in your Bible or you're taking notes, that's a very special verse explaining uh, what eternal life is. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, Jesus said, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus saying, as he's facing the cross, Father, I'm coming home. I'm, I'm looking forward to being in your presence. I remember what it was 33 short years ago to be in your presence. And he's saying, Father, there's between me and getting home to you, there's the cross. And so, Father, I just, before it all starts turning into chaos, I want to take a moment. And I want you to know, Father, that I want to glorify you in these moments uh, with my life. So let's think about when God prayed, and we'll, we'll, we'll take a couple of weeks through, the, through John 17, it's 26 verses. Uh, but let's just look at the first five verses and note a couple of things, four things about this prayer. The first thing I want you to note is the person doing the praying. Okay, so I just want you to think with me about this. So we see very clearly in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said. So it's none other than Jesus. That's probably not news to you. It's chapter 18, he's going to enter the garden. So he's walking and he's approaching the garden. And he stops. Previously, up to this point, he's been talking to his followers. Now he's going to be talking to the Father. He knows what's about to happen. He's told the disciples what's going to happen, but the disciples don't get it. He knows that they do not understand. And I want you to see that Jesus is praying to the Father. Because he takes this position in our life as he's taking right here in the disciples' life. It's like he's got a hand on the Father and he's got a hand on his disciple and he's going he's to pray. He's going to be the mediator for them. He's going to pray for these disciples and everybody who would believe after him, which is us. I remember when I first came across 1 Timothy 2.5 having grown up in a church where you went through uh, uh, you went through a church service to get to God, you had to go through somebody with a collar on. I remember 1 Timothy 2.5, the very first time was quoted, and there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. He's mediating right now. He's interceding 
uh, right now. So this fall, and I just want us to think about the person who's praying. So this fall, we went through in Matthew 6, uh, what, what has been commonly called the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. We went through term by term. Uh, it's recorded in Matthew 6 and Luke 11. And, uh, but, but, but that's not really the Lord's Prayer. That should be called the Disciples' Prayer. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. Now, this, let me remind you of this. When, when he taught the disciples how to pray the Our Father, the disciples had come to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And then the very next phrase out of the Lord's mouth is, pray, when you pray, pray like this. Um, there's a petition in the Our Father that Jesus could never pray. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. He never sinned. There are petitions in John 17 that the disciples could never pray. So if we could somehow rewire our mind a little bit, and when we say, well, that's the, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer, I want you to go to John 17, not Matthew 6. Matthew 6 is the disciples' prayer. This is truly the Lord's Prayer. Now, before I leave this little, the person doing the praying, we should ask ourselves, well, why did Jesus... Or why did God need to pray? Why is God praying? And uh, there, there is a, uh, a deep answer, but really it's an easy answer. And, you, and it's important that we comprehend this. While Jesus was on earth, he voluntarily submitted to the Father in heaven. You don't have to take my word for it. Paul wrote about this in this unbelievable passage of Scripture. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. Speaking of Christ, who though in, who he was in the form of God, that means he's exactly God. Jesus did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped while he was here on earth. But he emptied himself. That's the word kenosis. By taking the form of a servant, voluntarily, being born in the likeness of men, voluntarily, being found in human form, voluntarily, he humbled himself, voluntarily, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Uh, if you, if you uh, were so inclined to go to seminary, you would take uh, possibly a whole semester on the little phrase in verse 7, but he emptied himself. It's called the kenosis. What does it mean that God emptied himself? Did he stop being God? When he took on flesh, was he more human than he was God? Was he 50% of each? No, the biblical teaching, it was he 100% man and he stayed 100% God. He basically, if you just put it in the simplest terms, he put a suit coat, he put flesh over the glory of being God. Remember at the transfiguration, what did he do? He had a few of the disciples and he basically said, wah, and showed a little bit of his glory. So even though he's 100% God, being 100% human, he volunteered to place himself under the Father, and thus God prays. Now, secondly, I want you to think with me just for a moment about the posture of the one praying. I want you to put your eyes on verse 1 again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said... Now, this is the longest recorded 
uh, prayer of Jesus, 632 words, uh, 26 verses, uh, all of John 17. Um, we know on several occasions that he prayed all night. We know on numerous occasions he woke up in the middle of the night and he prayed till daylight. So it wasn't the longest period of time that he prayed, but it was certainly the longest that's recorded. I want you to notice his posture in praying. It says in verse 1 that he lifted up his eyes to heaven. So his eyes went from his followers at this very moment as he's entering the Garden of Gethsemane. His hour is going to be here. His eyes went from his followers to his father. He's looking up. And then it says, and it was a little simple word, and said, and then we're going to have the prayer. The little word said has meaning. It's the word for using your audible voice. It means that he spoke out loud. It's recorded for us, by the way. So he not only lifted up his eyes to heaven and the Father, but he lifted up his voice. If you study his prayers, vocal prayer uh, seemed to be a habit for him. Now, I got a couple of verses that help us think about the posture of prayer uh, just from the psalmist. Psalm 25 and verse 1, David wrote this, To you, O Lord up my soul. The idea is we're, we're, we're lifting up our soul. And then even more specifically, in Psalm 123 and verse 1, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in heavens. And then notice I put the, the phrase which is in there, a song of ascents. I'll, I'll explain that in just a second. So here, here, just one more. There's a number of these. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, whenever you see the phrase in a certain number of Psalms, a song of ascents, uh, three to seven times in a year, no matter where you lived, if you were a Jew, you would travel to Jerusalem. And in Scripture, Jerusalem is always up. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. They're traveling up to or down from Jerusalem. And so a song of ascent is as these Jewish families, hundreds of thousands of Jews on three different occasions each year, as they would walk these paths, as they would go by families, as they would go by clans, as they would go by communities, they would sing songs. Those songs were called the song of ascents. So I just want you to see that as they're praying, they're verbalizing, they're singing, they're vocalizing their prayers up to as they're thinking about God being up there. Now, in Scripture, if you did a cursory study of prayer, you would find the posture of prayer. You'd find kneeling, you'd find bowing, uh, you'd find dancing. Can I get an amen there? You find dancing, you lift up, uh, you see lifting up of hands. There's two things the Bible doesn't mention anywhere when it comes to praying. Closing your eyes and folding your hands. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. And I've got 16 grandkids. I want their hands held because they're going for the first piece of roast beef that's out there in the middle of that table. I'm not telling kids I don't need to do that because Pastor Dave, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying if you want to take the posture of prayer as it's exampled in Scripture... You might add to your repertoire, looking up and speaking up. Now think about it. Well, Dave, when, when, would I, when would I practice doing this if I want to start speaking out loud and looking up? Well, probably not when you're in the line at Fairway or Hy-Vee or something, you know. Uh, but when you're in the car, 
Okay, you know, just help me out. How many in the last two years, and men, you can admit this, how many in the last two years have at least sung a verse or something to the radio in the car, just by raise of hand? Have you, have you verbalized or talked to yourself? In the car. You could do this in the car. You could do this, hands on the steering wheel. Uh, you could do it at home. Take a walk. Look up. Talk to God. Like, verbalize it. That's how Jesus often prayed. Number three out of four, the purpose of prayer. And I want, you to, I want you to feel this and see this. So I have two thoughts. I want us to look at the first phrase in verse one. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. The hour has come. I just want to take a moment here. This is the seventh time that the hour has been mentioned in the Gospel of John, and it's the last time. So what is the hour? What's, what's the purpose? Well, the hour had come. Well, what was the hour? Well, let me just run you through the Gospel of John when Jesus would use this phrase. So in chapter 2, in verse 4, when his mother came to him at the wedding of Canaan and said, they're, they're out of wine. And if you didn't study it, you didn't know the heart of Christ, you'd say, well, he gets kind of snarky here. I would never talk to my mom like this. But he said, woman, what does that have to do with me? Uh, my hour has not yet come. Now, we know the story that he did turn the water into wine. But his first response at the wedding of Cana, before he had done any public miracles, this would be the first one, is my hour had not yet come. That bears huge significance. Because once he does this first miracle, turning the water into wine, the clock starts. The clock starts ticking. He has now turned water into wine. People are now talking. He's not just anybody walking around on earth. Chapter 7 and verse 30, they were going to arrest him. But it, but, but, it, but it says in Scripture in John 7 and verse 30 that no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 80, he, he preaches to everybody, I'm the light of the world. That ticks the religious leaders off. So they want to lay a hand on him. But it says again, no one was able to lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now you get to John chapter 12 where he's entering Jerusalem and... Uh, and, uh, and he says in John chapter 12, uh, now my hour has come. In John chapter 12 and verse 27, listen to the passion of this. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. John chapter 16 and verse 32, my hour is coming, Jesus said to the disciples, and it now is. And here in John chapter 17 and verse 1, now remember the Father and the Son made this agreement back uh, before time. He says to the Father, my, my hour has come. So what, what is the hour? Let's, let's be very clear here. It's the hour of his humiliation. It's the hour of his eternal nakedness. It's the hour of his suffering. It's the hour of his death. 
It's the hour of the cross. It's the hour where the wrath of God is turned on him. It's the hour when the father forsakes him and he can't even say father anymore. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the hour he took your sin and my sin and put it on his shoulders. But let's even get more real. He said, the hour's come. Now, Jesus is like, has a GPS map. He knows everything that's going on all around him. So when he's praying this prayer, here's what he already knows. He knows that the wood for the cross of Calvary has already been cut. He knows the nails for his hands that are going to pierce his hands and feet have already been forged. He knows the spear that's going to lance his side has already been fashioned. He knows that they've already picked out the place for him to be crucified. It's fixed. He knows that Judas has already betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. He knows that the legal machinery for the false accusations, the lying witnesses, the howling mobs, it's all been gathered. It's all in place. He knows that the bullying soldiers that are going to mock him and spit him and, in his face and pluck his beard and scourge his back and, and make him naked and the cowardly judge are all ready to do whatever they're going to do. He knows the band of soldiers have been gathered. The religious elites are going to be with them. They have torches in their hand. They have weapons and they're on the march. He knows that's now. He knows that in 12 hours, that would be us saying by midnight tonight, he is crucified. The lamb of God is slain. And yet Jesus, knowing all of that, and his disciples not comprehending any of that, what does he pray for? Well, if you take this afternoon, you read through John 17, you're going to find out that the heart of his prayer was for the Father to be glorified, and he prayed for you, and he prayed for me. He prayed for you, and he prayed for me. Uh, while I was at the retreat on Friday... Earlier in the day, um, I had a, a classmate, classmates I try to keep in touch with a little bit, mostly through Facebook, and I had a classmate um, that uh, was diagnosed with cancer a while back, and, and uh, didn't, didn't look like she was doing all that great, and so Friday morning, I had my little prayer thing from going through the disciples' prayer, the Our Father, and I made this little journal, and I'm praying her name was Deb praying for her and she had a grandson Alex she wanted me to pray for Alex he was born premature and struggling but doing okay and so I so I just fired off a little private message said hey um, Deb I just want you to know even though I haven't seen you in a long while I just wanted you to know I was praying for you and Alex and and uh, uh, I got five minutes later I got a response back uh, from the daughter on her Facebook page saying, Dave, I don't know, I've never met you, but uh, my mom's told me about you, but she, uh, she's taken a turn for the worst cancers all over her body. Uh, she actually had a stroke on Tuesday night. She's in a hospice at the hospital right now, and uh, she's, she, it, doesn't, it doesn't look good. And then on Friday night while I was at the retreat, I got the message that she had passed away. And um, I, I had been in this passage, and I was, my mind was like, okay, um, how good of a friend was I to her in my life? And then I got to thinking, I wonder in her conscious moments when she, she knows that she's in the last hour or two, what did she say to God? Or what did she ask God? And I got to think, well, what would I ask? 
Well, not what would I say to my friends and family around me. We talked about that last week. But what would I say to God? What would I ask of God? Now that's, that's Jesus right here. He's, he, he's, he's in hospice. He, it's, he knows. What would he say? Well, it's amazing when you read this prayer because it's all about his disciples and us. I would like to think that I could have a little sliver of it not being about me in that moment. And so he just prayed that the Father would be glorified. Just look at verse 4 and 5. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's like, Father, I'm coming home. But, but the way for me to get home is through the cross. I'm not going to do an end around. Father, would you glorify me so I can glorify you? I, I, would, I would hope to God that's my prayer in that moment. That was Jesus' prayer. Now, let me, let me close with the last part of this. And like I said, we're just kind of scratching the surface on the prayer here. But I want you to see the promise of the one praying. Look at verse 3 with me. And Jesus said, and this is the greatest definition for eternal life found in Scripture. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This is eternal life. That you know, personally experience, most intimate of knowledge, the true God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. So, so I just want you to focus on this statement. It's just, these are my words. This isn't scripture. But, but here's eternal life. I want, I want everybody to think through this in this moment. By personally knowing God. By the way, the word for know here is the word that it's the most intimate of knowledge. It would be a husband and wife on their honeymoon. The most intimate of knowledge. Personally experienced. By personally knowing, not just intellectual, but intellect, emotion, will, all of you, knowing all of him. God the Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, and his finished work on the cross. He says in verse 4, it's accomplished. It's the same word he uses on the, Christ. It is, on the cross. It is finished. Knowing God the Father, through the Lord Jesus, his finished work on the cross, you are given eternal life. That's what the, this passage says and everywhere through Scripture. You don't earn eternal life. You are given eternal life. Can we say amen to that? Amen. I talked to a guy after the first service, and man, he's like, he's like you know, I, I had this mindset that, I, that I've got to earn uh, some respect from God. I'm like, hey, good luck with that one. Tell me, uh, tell me when you arrive. He goes, yeah, no, I, I, I just realized I, I'm not going to be able to do that. Is that, is that correct thinking? Correct thinking. Yep. He gives us eternal life or we would never get it. Amen? Amen. And the way he says, I'll give it to you is, he says, I want you to know my son and know what my son did for you and so value that and so need that and so see it's so necessary that you receive his finished work on the cross. When you do that, the father says, I give you eternal life. You've done everything I've required you to do. You've believed, you've received with your whole life mind and body. The word actually eternal life 
has more of the idea of quality of life than it does quantity of life. It does include both. But, it, but God would talk about the abundant life. Jesus said in John 5, 24, talking about eternal life, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So he's, so he's talking about you can know that you have eternal life while you're alive today, in this room today. He does not come into judgment, the person who has believed. He doesn't come pass into judgment, but he passes from death to life. The moment you believe, not baptize, not become a deacon, not join the church, not get a white collar, not do a crawl on your knees, not jump through a bunch of hoop. Believe. It's the one requirement over a hundred times in the New Testament. You believe with your heart and your mind and your soul that Christ died for you and you were so thankful he did. These verses radically changed my life. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And this goes for anybody in this, everybody in this room. Whoever has the son, you have life. Any of you who do not have the son of God, what does it say? You do not have life. These are my words. I write these things to you, believe in the name of the son of God, so that you may know right now, right here, right in this place, that you have eternal life. I couldn't believe when I was told that you could know you're going to heaven before you die. That's the greatest news in the world, isn't it? That frees you up. That prepares you for the moment. I've been in the room. I've said it. Many times I've been in the room where 50, 75 people died. I've seen them die. Believers die different. They just do. So an intimate knowledge, this idea of knowing of self, you're a sinner, of the Savior, he died for you, and salvation, I must believe, and a personal response of belief and trust with your intellect, your emotion, and your will, he grants you eternal life, which is the abundant life, which is the forever life. I close with this, and I'm late, but I cannot pass this. So in my Bible reading program, a number of you started it, this week I was in Acts 17. Now in Acts 17, uh, Paul is going around telling anybody who will listen about Christ. He comes into the city of Athens, Christ hasn't been spoken about there, and he's walking around, he noticed there's idols everywhere. And he comes across this one idol, and it says basically the idol to the unknown God, or the statue to the unknown God, or in honor of the unknown God. Well, eventually he gets invited by this group of people that want to hear about the newest teaching, and so Paul gets invited to speak. And how does Paul speak? Paul says, well, I know you're very religious people, and as I was walking through the town, I saw this idol, and there was an inscription to the unknown God. And Paul says, the person that is unknown to you, the God that's unknown to you, I know. Let me tell you about him. I want you to see the power of what he said when he was speaking to them in these two verses. And he said about God, I want everybody to get this. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So, so God's a creator. You're not here by mistake. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So here's what the scripture's saying so we don't miss it. God has created each one of us in the generation which we were born and in the place with which we live. Every one of you are here because you've been allotted and you've given a boundary of where you're going to be. 
God's in control. Why did he do that? Why did he create people for a certain period of time in a certain place? Why are you here right now? That's, that's what the scriptures say. And here it is, and I want, you, I want you to see the beauty of this, because this is how your pastor, or if you're visiting, this is how I see you. This is how God sees you. So that they should seek God. He's created you to seek him, to find him. And perhaps feel their way toward him. That little phrase in the original language means to grope around in the darkness. It means it has the word of actually feeling your way around, trying to find something. It carries the idea of you're looking for something, you're not sure what it is or where it is, but you know there's something missing. He's put it in the heart of every human being to not let the world satisfy them or anything in the world. So there's this little hole that can't be closed off that if you're honest with yourself, you're gonna say there's something missing in my life. All the money in the world hasn't closed it. And that's because he's put it in us to, and so, so you may, maybe this isn't the words that you'd use to describe yourself, but God says, it's like you're feeling around, you're groping around in the darkness looking for something, you're not even sure what you're looking for. And God's purpose is, is that you find him. And then the little phrase, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Lakeside is a place in a period of time, in a specific place, where people who are seeking and groping around in the darkness can find Jesus. You are, you are here you found the spot. It is the allotted time. I don't care how religious you are, what church you belong to. It doesn't even matter. What matters is, do you know Christ? God, in his beauty and in his care for you, has allowed you to hear that he died on the cross for you. Now, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna continue to grope around for something you're not gonna find? Because it's right here. It's, it's in the gospel. It's right in front of you. You've, you've stumbled on it. You may not even woke up this morning looking for it. He wants you to find it. Will you, will you place your trust in Christ? I'm not saying come to Lakeside. I'm not saying join Lakeside. I'm not saying ditch your church. Will you, will you believe, will you receive what Christ did on the cross for you? When he prayed the hour before the cross, he prayed for you. Won't you this morning be an answer to his prayer? Won't you answer his prayer? Just simply believe right where you're at. Let me pray. Father, that verse of scripture about seeking for something, groping around, was the description of my life. Highly religious, totally lost. And you said, for all those who will seek you, they will find you. Lord, would there be one or many here today that would simply, in the quietness of their spirit, not, not even in this public arena, uh, lifting up their hands or even their voice, but just quietly saying, I am a sinner, God. Something's been missing Thank you for dying on the cross. I see the beauty of it. 
I see that you care for me, even in your moment of need, you made it all about me when it should have been all about you. I receive your son's finished work on the cross. Would you please forgive my sins? Would you give me the gift of eternal life? I'll be eternally grateful. Father, we are a church. I am a father and a grandfather and a pastor and a husband that has been blessed immensely. I thank you for that. I pray that this, uh, this church family and this spot and this community would always be a spot that loves children, that would be blessed by you with more children, and would be a safe zone where people who are groping around in the darkness, that's what, that's what your word says, the world it's like a darkness, not even knowing what they're missing. Our oh Lord, might they see your son high and lifted up on that cross, saying it is finished, the, the sin debt is paid, and trust in you this very moment so that they could cross over from death to life. I will thank you for that in Christ's precious name. Amen.